It was uh, the summer of 1996. Anybody uh, remember 96, the summer? How old were you? Were you? Some of you weren't even born, making me feel so old. But summer 90, 1996, America, Atlanta hosted the Olympics. And I was there with my girlfriend, who would very shortly thereafter become my fiance and then my wife of this week. We just marked uh, 27 years of marriage. But that summer, I remember, yeah, you can clap for Susan. God bless her. Man, oh man, she is amazing. Amazingly happy <laughs> to have me for so long. But we were there, and I remember we, we served in Catholic ministry. I won't t- say everything. It's you know, kind of complicated, but we were there with crew, and we worked at Georgia Tech and Georgia State, Catholic ministry at those campuses. And then for two and a half weeks, we had these students that were on our team uh, serve with us in the Georgia Dome. And I remember uh, being in awe, walking in the Georgia Dome and being like, man, we were just, we were blown away. And then 20 years later, we would find out they blew it up. Y'all know this, the Georgia Dome, it got blown up. Now, some of you Ole Miss fans were in the Mercedes Benz a couple of weeks ago, getting all peachy over there and enjoying that incredible uh, facility. One day, maybe they'll blow that place up. But apparently, the Georgia Dome outlasted uh, its, its power and its allure and its beauty and all. But I can't believe they blew it up. Anybody remember this from a few years ago? They blew up the Georgia Dome. They imploded it, I think is the word to use. And there was one camera that millions of people were tuning into online to watch the explosion. Anybody remember this? And a bus pulled up right in front of the camera. And like people were just so mad. They were mad. How dare that bus driver run his daily route? How dare that guy go to his job and do his job? They were mad. Why were, the, why were people mad? They were mad because they wanted to see something get blown up. People love to see things implode. And what took years to design and construct was blown up in just a moment. Let me tell you what else people love to see. People love to see people implode. We see story after story of of a leader or someone who they got caught. They were found out. They were keeping up a charade. They were lying to the people that loved them, lying to the people that depended on them. And we wonder how could there be such a capacity for duplicity. Y'all know duplicity, it's double-mindedness. It's similar to Jesus' teaching on hypocrisy. It's, It's being one person on the outside, but being another person on the inside. It's being one person out of town, but another person in town. It's being one person with a certain group of friends and another person when you're around another group. There's a capacity within all of us for duplicity. And we watch a building blow up and go, yeah, cool. But sometimes we do that with people. And how could that happen? I think every time it happens, I don't pretend to know all the stories, but I believe there's a common refrain. I believe that something important was neglected. Something valuable was unattended. And I think it happens because we think it can't happen. And so today, I want to talk to you in a week two of influence. If you remember last week, we talked about four ways to influence other people. What were they? Do you remember? Our final is comprehensive. We said from Acts chapter 20 that we can influence people by how we live, by what we, the work that we do, how we do the work that we do, by what we go through, and then by who our words point to. Paul said, I know, or I'm sorry, he said, you know, three times in Acts 20, he said, you know how I lived among you. You know how I didn't hesitate to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know how these hands have worked and have contributed to the needs of people. You know, you know, you know me. We, I mentioned a seminary professor who said this and it's impacted me. We impress people from a distance, but we influence them up close. And Paul was a leader. By the way, don't ever fully trust a spiritual leader if you can't see them up close. 
But remember Paul's remarkable statement in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Jesus. Ultimately, people don't want to follow you. People really don't want to follow me. I don't need to flatter myself. I need to be a spiritual leader that's pointing people to Jesus. I will be worth following if I'm following Jesus. So last week, four reasons or four ways that we can influence. And today, I want to give you uh, three ways that we can protect ourselves, that you can protect yourself from negative influence. And we'll get there in just a minute. Remember, we're in Acts 20, so if you want to turn there, you can. All the passages will be on this uh, new TV. But Acts chapter 20 is where we'll be, and we're in a place called Miletus. I put up a map last week and showed you where it was in relation to Jerusalem, way across the Mediterranean. If you know Ephesus, it's 36 miles south of there, and it was an important city, but wasn't so much anymore. It had declined as people had moved to other uh, areas, like my hairline, it just receded, and just not much there. And that's Miletus, but there are incredible things to see if you go here is uh, the remnants of the Colosseum that used to seat, uh, or the theater, I should say, uh, that seats, uh, it used to seat uh, 15,000 people. But this is Miletus, and Paul is calling them together. And Acts 20 is about this. He's calling the leaders together. And he says, hey, let's have a conference, but let's don't go to a big city. Let's go kind of out of the way. You ever done a retreat, you know, in the woods or somewhere that's, again, doesn't have all the hustle and bustle? Paul says, let's call the leaders together. In Acts 20, here's what we're witnessing. We started last week, we'll, today, and next week as well. But what we're witnessing is Paul calling the Ephesian elders together. And so we get one part, tearful goodbye, and second part, like halftime locker room pep talk. And he's saying to them, man, I'm, we're never going to see each other again. And so there's a tearful goodbye. I'll say it again, said it last week. Men, especially, don't be afraid to cry. When you've been in a battle, when you've planted churches and you're sharing, I mean, think about how the church, one of the, I think, the amazing validations of the Christian message is how it took root in first century, in the first century world. I mean, incredible how, how it grew. And they were in a battle to, to plant churches and to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, take a look at um, a picture here. This is the men of Easy Company. How many of you saw the Band of Brothers? You, you know these guys, one of the most famous army battalions uh, of World War II. And they ran a successful raid on uh, Hitler's um, Nazi Germany. In fact, um, this is my favorite part of what these men did. They liberated a concentration camp. Whew. They liberated a concentration camp. And Look at these guys. Picture's not the best, but look at them. And that's like camaraderie. That's different than potluck fellowship, isn't it? That's different than uh, going to a small group and not contributing, not getting vulnerable, and just kind of going through the motion. That's, that's different. That's, if you don't have a mission, if, if your group doesn't have a mission, your church doesn't, your marriage doesn't, your organization doesn't, then, then you're missing out on this. But this, this is a group of people, a group of men in particular, who had a mission. This was taken in 1945. Imagine the, their joy. Imagine what they've been through. Remember Paul said, hey, We've been through tears and trials and humility. Humility, tears, and trials. Acts 20, verse 19. That was last week. But what you've been through is probably the biggest way you're going to influence others. But they had been in a battle. And they, had, they knew how powerful it was. And I think of Paul, this tearful goodbye. I think there were tears because he knew they would never see each other again. So that's something, isn't it? But then I think there's this halftime locker room pep talk because he's telling them, that the battle is ongoing, that there's more fight, and that they should step up and influence other people. So today, 
three ways. Let me, let me show you on the screen here. This is what we're talking about. This is the essence of the sermon, if we can put that up. Three ways to protect your faith from negative influence. Now, you see the first one is be on guard, but stay with me for a second. I'll talk about that. But to protect, you ever protected something? Has anybody ever assigned you to protect someone or something? I went, when I was 20-something years old, I was very single and kind of foolish, and I lived in Florida, and I would come home to visit my family in Mississippi. I was in the ministry, but kind of a, a dumb guy, and I was visiting my family, and I have a sister, a mom and dad and a sister. My older sister uh, has a son, a one and only son. He's 30-something years old now with three kids of his own and a wife, but it was just him, and it was just me in this particular time, and my, my sister's like, hey, you, you watch Matt. You got him. You got my one and only son. I'm like, I got him. So she went out of town. I had Matt, and we're like, what are we going to do? So he said, let's ride a bike. Well, I said, I don't have a bike. My bike's in Florida. You can ride your bike. I'll watch you ride your bike. And so we were in Columbus, Mississippi. Anybody know Columbus? There's a lot of hills in Columbus. So we were on the top of this hill. We were getting ready to start. He was on a bike. And I said, man, can you take this hill? I mean, that's a big hill. And he goes, I got it. So I pushed him. And within like a minute, I mean, a second, I should say, I mean, he went down and he froze up. And I froze. I was like, oh, no. And little Matthew just, I mean, his legs were out. He, he gripped the bar like that. And I'm like, this is not going to end well. And it didn't. He went into a mailbox and a parked car and got up with lots of uh, red and blue on him and scrapes and everything. And I, you can imagine how I felt terrible. And my first concern was my little guy. And my second concern, which became a bigger concern, was my relationship with my sister. Because she asked me to protect her one and only son. And I think I still, even though I was 20-something, I had my prefrontal cortex wasn't fully developed. So I used that in my defense argument in the court of law with my sister. When you're called to protect something, you want to do it well. You, I failed that day because I listened to a little guy that I should have been leading, not him leading me. You need to protect what's important. We are called to protect. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, we preached through that. You know what anyway? It says love does a lot of things and love protects and this is, this is what we need to do to protect our faith. Hey, your faith is worth protecting. You know, Jesus in uh, Matthew 13 tells a parable. It became really famous. I bet some of you know it. And he said there's seed. He talked about a farmer because people farmed. And, and he said the seed fell on the ground. And some of the seed fell on the path. And the birds came and snatched it up. And some, fee, some seed rather uh, fell on the rocky soil. And the, it didn't have roots. And so when the sun came out, it scorched it. And it withered because of it, it, it was shallow. And then some seed fell on rocky ground. And the rocky ground, Jesus said in his parable, is the thorns of this, or, I'm sorry, the ground the rocky ground it it comes in the cares of this world he said the deceitfulness of riches the lust of everything other things chokes out the word uh, there's a seed that is sown on good soil and that good soil is a faith that remains that fights through anything humility tears and trials and jesus tells us that parable it doesn't make anybody feel good but he tells us that parable to prepare us for the reality that not everybody who says they're a christian will remain in the faith. And for you and I, we're going to talk about three ways that we can protect each other from negative influences to our faith. And the first, you see it, it's be on guard. Look what he says in Acts 20, verse 28. He writes to them and says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The American church, pastors, we're not, we're not doing our job very well. But if you go somewhere, 
You think about the persecuted church, I would encourage you to read about it. I would encourage you to think now today, even if it was not convenient for you to be here, to think about today that there are people worshiping underground, risking life and limb and harm to worship. The American Christian, sometimes we have to persuade each other that the church matters. Can I just say, like, the church matters. What we weave in time will wear in eternity. And I'm telling you, the church matters. And your investment, if you're a believer in Jesus, your investment in the church really matters. Look, he purchased it with his own blood. That's a big thing. And so the faith that we have in Jesus as we become his apprentices, his students, his disciples, we form together in a church no matter what it looks like and we follow after him and the gates of hell. He said in Caesarea Philippi on a, on a hillside, a town so important that it had two names and he said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He bought it with his blood. It really matters. No wonder we have so many skeptics around because we yawn at the church and Jesus said, I bought it with my own blood. Paul says that of what Jesus did. So be on your guard. Let me tell you what doesn't happen at our house when we talk about being on guard. Here's what doesn't happen at our house. At our house, we don't get ready for bed and we don't say, all right, I've got the first shift from, from now to 2 a.m. and then you have the second shift from 2 to 5 or so and then someone else will wake up and they'll get the final shift. We don't do that. Now be on the guard. Let me back up. Be on guard. Many of your translations, some of you open an actual Bible. Some of your translations, it says a keep watch. Keep watch. Now in Bible times, they got it. First century Jewish person would say, oh yeah, we have a watchtower. We have people with binoculars or whatever they had back then. I didn't do my homework. The, the ancient binoculars. They had ancient binoculars. Not as good as our binoculars. No infrared, right? And they would look out and they would look out to see who's coming. They would keep watch. Well, we don't keep watch, do we? Here's what we do at our house. I'm being a little silly, but at our house, you know what we do? We lock the doors and we go to bed. And I bet you do the same thing. You only keep watch if you're a soldier. You only keep watch if you're in a battle. You only keep watch if you know there's an encroaching enemy. And Peter, a comrade, a colleague of Paul, would say in 1 Peter 5, 8, who also talks about the Holy Spirit, who also talks about overseers and shepherds and elders and how the church ought to be led. And he says, be on your guard, keep alert, because you have an adversary, you have a real enemy. He's like a roaring lion. He's prowling around seeking whom he may devour. He looks for our weakness. He looks for the weak one outside of the fold, and he devours. And so we need to be on our guard. Now, I think the order of how Paul put it matters. Do you? Be on your guard for what? For yourselves. He doesn't say point your finger, judging people, acting like Dana Carvey's SNL skit, the church lady from so long ago. He doesn't say do that. He says guard, first of all, be on guard yourselves. You see, you can't guard the flock if you're not guarding yourself. So the order really matters. So changing language a little bit, let me ask you the question, what do you need to keep watch over? What do you need to keep watch over. I want to suggest two things. First, Christian, your personal time with God. I was fortunate enough, remember we're talking about influence, kind of the negative side today, but thinking about the positive side, I was fortunate to have a leader who mentored me and influenced me when I was young. He said to have personal time with God can be very intimidating. He said you need three things. He said you need a place, you need a plan, and you need to have the right posture. To have personal time with God, what it means is this. It means that there's a time, a place where you meet with God. 
It's this place. It's a prayer closet. It's not a bed, usually. It's a prayer closet, or it's an office, or it's a, it's a chair, it's a, it's a couch. It's this place. This is where I meet with God. You have a place, and then you have a plan. If you don't, and you're intimidated by it, and you're unsure, we have resources on our webpage. We have leaders in small groups who are trained to help you, point you to plans where you can get the word in you, to have a, a place and to have a plan. It's so good. And you don't have to do the most uh, you know, theologically astute plan or the, you know, the most... A comprehensive thing. You can start somewhere. Have someone influence you and mentor you and how you can start with a place, with a plan, and then with a posture. Do you know there's a posture spiritually that's really important? And I know we preach soul because it's all about souls, but your body is important too. I don't know if you know this. I shared this for the first hour, but when I'm preaching, every time I preach, I can see you. Y'all know that? I can, I can see you. I can see Chris in the balcony right now. Y'all look up and see Chris Mixon, very scary character. Um, you know, in Acts 20, the first part, there's a guy named Eutychus, and the guy preached long, and he fell out dead, and that could be Chris now if I just keep going. But, you know, I can see you when I preach, and you know, sometimes people in church, um, again, I can see you. Some people come to church, and they're like, all right, what you got? Are you good? Is this guy good? What's he got? I bet he's not as good as that guy I listened to online, my favorite preacher online. Yeah, what you got? And, you know, you there's a, there's a closeness there. And can I just say, um, I don't want to be like insecure here, but that's hard. That's pretty hard. So if I see you doing that, I don't look at you, right? I, I mean, I, I'm preaching to you, but I don't, I don't look at you. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit softens your heart and you get in a better mood, but I'm not watching. I'm looking at people that are looking that there's an open posture and a sense of like, I'm listening. Like I'm, I'm going to give you 35 minutes ish. And I'm, I'm going to listen because you wrote this and prepared it. And maybe God's in it. And maybe God's, and you, there's just a different posture to people in church and there's a different posture to when you spend time with God and sometimes my posture is not good. I read Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. It talks about the word of God. I won't sin against you if I hide it in my heart. It talks about the word being like a honeycomb and the, the, the value of the scripture. It, it talks about the posture of the heart. Uh, Proverbs 2 talks about the posture, how we lean in. Our hearts are open. We're willing to listen and do something about it. There's a posture to hearing from God. I'm asking you, what do you need to be on guard with? What do you need to keep watch? The first thing I want to challenge you in is your personal walk with God, your personal time with God. The second thing I want to tell you to be on guard, to keep watch over, is your points of vulnerability. Your personal time with God and your point of vulnerability. What might that be? Pay attention to your emotions. Pay attention, as the young people say, to your triggers. Pay attention to the hurt, to the intensity of it, to the, the lights on the dashboard of your heart. Pay attention to your emotions. Pay attention. Have emotional awareness. Learn to grow in that, to process with a wise counselor what you're experiencing in your heart. Jesus would teach in Matthew 7, what's in there comes out from there. And you know that you've experienced someone's rage. You've been hurt or betrayed by someone. It came out, but it was in here. What's in your heart? Pay attention to your personal time with God. Pay attention to your points of vulnerability. And isn't it different for different people? Your point of vulnerability could be that device that you own that owns you. And you said a long time ago, I'm just going to look at these images. And it doesn't hurt anybody. It's just a fantasy. It's just in my imagination. It's confined to my imagination. And you forgot how powerful the human imagination is. 
you forgot that you can be addicted and enslaved to your imagination. And you believed a distortion. You believed a lie that it was just a fantasy and doesn't harm anybody. But it's harming your intimacy with someone you should be intimate with. It's harming your intimacy with God. It's making it hard for you to look at yourself in the mirror to know that these images, uh, you become enslaved to them. It's a personal point of vulnerability. Pay attention to it. Confess and repent and live in community in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pay attention to your point of vulnerability. Your point of vulnerability could be control. I talked to someone this week. He doesn't go here, so everybody relax. But I talked to someone this week. He's like, control is my thing. He said, I learned years ago that uh, I just felt invisible at work and at home. And you know what I would do? I would rage and I would display anger. And then people paid attention and I could get my way. This became for him a point of vulnerability. Maybe a point of vulnerability is your worth. You need to be affirmed and validated and you're willing to conform. You're willing to move away from the values that you hold dear to be who so-and-so wants you to be because you're living in people-pleasing. You need to be careful there. That could be your point of vulnerability. To use biblical language outside of Acts 20 and Hebrews 12, it says to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles you. If you walked into a spider web, I've ever done that, what do you do when you walk into to a spider web? First of all, you flail madly. You're in a panic. You're trying to get it off of you. Then you remember where there's a spider web. There could be a spider. So that's kind of more panic, sheer terror. And then you look around to see if anybody sees you because they can't see the web, but they can see you doing this and you look insane. And Paul is writing, or rather the writer of Hebrews, we don't necessarily know who it is, but the writer of Hebrews is saying, when you get entangled in sin, your point of vulnerability, it could be your signature sin. It could be the thing that easily entangles you. Have you noticed that when you go to some places, those places you leave and you're not happy, and that those places, when you go there, it makes you feel further from God? Have you noticed that there's some people that you hang around with and they don't edify you, they don't build you up, and when you leave them, you feel further from God? You're not dreaming the dreams and holding the values you once hold. That person in that place, people in place, that could be for you a point of vulnerability. So keep watch over what? Keep watch over your personal time with God. If you don't have a clue with that, let us disciple you in this. It would be our great joy. Your personal time with God and your point of vulnerability. Pay attention to both of those. So be on guard now, the order is important because you can't be on guard for the flock if you're not on guard for yourself. And we need leaders who will be on guard. Leaders who will say, I'm going to keep watch over what matters in my world. So the second thing that I want to share with you, second way, second way to protect your faith from negative influence is to shepherd others in the faith to shepherd others in the faith now this passage you'll see a few different words let's put uh, three of them up you'll see some different words that are sort of ancient or i would say uh churchy i guess flock overseers and shepherd now, no one uses this word really like you don't go that's my that's my flock those are my yeah, that's my flock over there man i'm hanging with my flock it may, what, do y'all, what do y'all say now? Your crew? What, what is it? Shout out something if you're in college or younger. Yeah, okay, cool. I guess I'm up on things. <laughs> Daniel, what you got? You hanging, who, who are you hanging with? Your, what did he say? Your gang. Your gang. Hanging with your gang. All right. 
So yeah, we'll go with that. Daniel, I thought you had something cool that I never heard. Like sometimes it's staff. Yeah, your flock, yeah. So you're hanging with your flock. So the flock is God's people. It's us. You know, remember, um, it's not a flattering image, but if you're going to have a shepherd, you're going to have some sheep. And sheep are dumb and dirty and defenseless. Sheep stray and are kind of stupid and need to be called back. And we're not pointing fingers at anybody. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Sometimes we sing a hymn, oh, my heart is prone to wonder. I can feel it. Man, can I tell you, maybe the preacher should admit this, but that's me. That's you. We're prone to wonder. So he talks about the flock. So let me take a pit stop real quick to talk about the word overseers. Because I believe, this is my interpretation of the passage, and of course I'm right, um, that all of us can be shepherds. If you're a parent, you're shepherding a child, right? You're, you're, uh, what's the best-selling book? You're shepherding a child's heart if you're doing it the right way. You're a shepherd if you're a parent. You're a shepherd if you lead a group. You're a shepherd if you're connected with other believers. But only a few people are overseers. So quick pit stop. We're in a non-denominational church. That doesn't mean we're anti-denominational or against denominations. What that means is we believe that Jesus is the head of the local church and that we have a primary leader. For now, that's me until you run me off. But we also led by a plurality of elders. These overseers, there's different words. Different churches use different words. But we, we look at the direction of the church. We look at the doctrine of the church. We consider the discipline that needs to happen in love in the church. These people provide for me support, encouragement, and accountability. I, I'm meeting with them tomorrow night, and I cannot wait for our first meeting of 2024 as we lay plans and clarify things and look to our future. An overseer is very important, and it's a high calling. The best overseers aren't really too eager for the job they're like surprised that you tap them on the shoulder and there's a humility there but the overseer is really important uh, for a couple of weeks I've had a secret I want to tell you the secret for two weeks I couldn't tell anybody but I, I was invited by a really large church that I used to work at called Pine Lake and they invited me out this past week to speak on video and they said don't tell anybody but this coming Sunday is the pastor's uh, 25th anniversary, and we're going to mark it. We're going to celebrate it. He doesn't know about it. Some trickeration behind the scenes. So it was my secret. So I drove out there and found out that they're interviewing his dad, his wife, his three kids, the five campus pastors, a woman named June Goff, and me. And I know they were interviewing me because they wanted me to say a couple of funny things. I got a lot of dirt on him. And so I sat there, and we don't have all this fancy stuff at this church, but like they had these lights and microphones, and there was a hair and makeup artist. Just kidding. And so I sat there, and I'm speaking about Chip, and they're asking me some questions, uh, prompted, provoked, unprovoked, unprompted. And I'm just talking about my friend who I knew in college. And I was just telling some stories. I'm like, there's no way they're going to play this stuff in church. Maybe they'll take something. But when I first met Chip Henderson, I saw him at a, come in a campus ministry meeting, and I thought, man, he's just here to meet the girls. And I got to know him, and I realized he was there just to meet the girls. 25 years of faithfulness kind of gets me. 25 years. June Golf on the video said it's almost holy ground to have the same pastor for 25 years leading in a church. And I say this not for my benefit. I don't. I'm telling you, I don't. I've checked my heart. I don't. A lot of you are going to grow up and go out and go to other places. Man, this is not an easy job. And when someone is leading a church, and for my brother, I prayed the same prayer for him that I pray for me, to stay scandal-free, to live above reproach, and be faithful. Give the success, whatever it is. And they've seen amazing amounts of success. They're so successful. I want to tell everybody, don't go to that church. You come to this, they're too successful. 
but faithfulness belongs to God. And so God gives us leaders, they're pastors, evangelists, teachers, apostles. Some people call them bishops. They're, they provide oversight. They're overseers, and they're really important. To be faithful is the call. And to be an effective overseer, we've got to keep watch on ourselves before we can keep watch on the flock. But I just want to say it's a great weight to be entrusted with the souls of people. So let me get back to it now. We're talking about shepherding. Let's, let's look at this passage. Or let's look at, put that back up if you would, just back to where we were. There's a flock, there's a shepherd, and there's overseers. If you go to Miletus, if you go to Miletus today, it still exists. It just wasn't, it's a shell of itself. But it's in western Turkey. I think I mentioned this last week. In western Turkey, if you go, you would be surprised, number one, how beautiful western Turkey is. It's breathtaking. But it's, it's, so much of it is rural. And so when you go there, you'll see, like you, when we, I was last there uh, in the 90s with some friends with crew, and we were traveling that part of the world. So we were in western Turkey, and I remember um, seeing some pottery shards. And like there was a, a, a homeowner telling us that this could be from like the Ottoman Empire, the Byzantine, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. It could go back further. My point is this, that for thousands of years, people lived on that land. They farmed it. They built it. They fought over it. And today it exists in a rural setting. And so there are sheep and there are shepherds. If you go to Western Turkey today, you probably don't even have to be a Christian. We're glad you're here. But if you're not a person of faith, you probably already know this, that Sheep and shepherd is a central image in the Bible. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. He wrote the 23rd Psalm that said, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus was called the Lamb of God. Jesus was the good shepherd and the chief shepherd. Uh, Ezekiel 34, I know that's a little bit obscure, but it talks about how a good shepherd leads, portending Jesus, uh, God the sovereign one. And Ezekiel 34, saying through the prophet, here's what a shepherd does. He leads the sheep to fertile ground, to good pasture, to 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 proper soil and water. He gives rest for them. He finds the one who strayed away. He binds up the injured. He seeks the lost. He calls them back. He strengthens the weak. This is the role of the shepherd. And it's pretending this, that we would be a community that would follow the good shepherd and that we would shepherd one another, that we would be close enough when we see someone not doing well, we would lovingly call them out. That when someone is hurt and injured, by the way, how do you think the church is doing? When someone is injured, we don't cast the stone. We pick them up and dust them off and say, get back in the game. And when Paul talks about humility and tears and trials in Acts 20, 19, last week's sermon, listen, it's somebody that's been through something. And that's what a shepherd sees is the value of somebody that's been through something very, very difficult. For us to shepherd one another is vitally important. So how do we protect ourselves from negative influences? How do you protect your faith from negative influences? Be on guard. We shepherd one another. And thirdly, this. We entrust them to him. Trust who? The one who's been distorted. Go back, if you would, to this passage, to Acts 20, and I believe it's verse 29, 30, and 31. Let's look at those individually. Now, I know that after my departure... Remember, last time I'm going to see you. After my departure, how's this for a warning? Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Verse 31. 
Therefore, be on the alert, be on guard, keep watch, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. By the way, we need more passionate leaders today. We need more leaders who really care about their people, who really care about the souls of men and women. And notice these four phrases that are really important, savage wolves. Remember what Jesus would say? There would be wolves in sheep's clothing. I wonder sometimes why we're surprised. And he said, not sparing the flock, they're seeking to destroy from among you. If I was in Miletus back then with Paul and those guys, I'd be like, is it you? Is it you? It ain't me. Is it you? From among you. Distorting the truth. You ever been to Chicago, to the Bean, to Millennial Park? Distorting the truth doesn't sound dangerous to me. This is a distortion mirror in Chicago. Y'all been? And people have the best time in front of the bean in Chicago. And it's fun because it distorts the images. It distorts you. It makes you look funnier than you already look. Distortion, when I first heard that and studied it this week, distorting the truth, eh, that's not really dangerous. Here's what Paul's saying. A distortion of the truth can destroy lives. Let me quickly share a couple. There's the distortion of shame. The distortion of shame, you know, guilt's a gift, guilt's a gift. I tell you all a lot, guilt's a gift. Guilt is a gift. There's godly sorrow, which is good. It leads you to repent. It leads you to say, hey, I, I, here's an area of my life I haven't kept watch over. It, sin has entered in. I need to be careful. And shame, though, says I am condemned. And condemnation, look at me, condemnation may come from a bad parent. It may come from within inside your noggin, but it never comes from the Holy Spirit. There is therefore now no more condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so shame, you can distort. There can be a distortion of shame. There can, there can be a distortion of love. Some people, I talk to too many young people. I must not be doing my job well as a pastor. Listen to me. You cannot say I'm in his love so I don't have to be under his rule. Jesus said in John 15, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Well, God loves me so I can do what I want to do. Oh God, I deserve to be happy. So I don't have to take his word seriously. I want to say, tremble at his word. Fear his word. Obey his word. To love him is to be, first be loved by him. Then it's to walk. It's to know that you're in his love. Is to live under his rule. It could be the distortion of faith. Too many of us, and we grow up with a faith tradition that says, name it and claim it. And what's wrong with you is that you didn't have enough faith. That's a distortion of the truth. And we, so many people leave faith because they assign promises to God that he never made. It's why I want you to be a student of what his promises really, really are. As Lauren and the team make their way up, I want to close us out by talking about how we, ways, these three ways, we can protect our faith from negative influence, guarding our heart shepherding one another, and entrusting those. Point number three, what do you do when you have a loved one who's gripped with a distortion, who's living a lie? By the way, this happened so much in COVID. We were locked down. We were isolated. We started reading new authors. We started reading people who would tickle our fancy, who would tickle our ears and make us feel good and rethink things and ask that question uh, that Eve asked in Genesis 3 about, did God really say that? What do you do when you have someone gripped in a distortion of truth? Paul would say in closing, Acts 20, 32, 
and trust them to him. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. There's probably not much of a harder thing to do when someone you love has strayed from the faith, when someone has departed, when someone's been negatively influenced and they no longer believe. As hard as it is, I want to say to you, commit them to God and trust them to God. Would you stand and like... 40 seconds, I'm going to try to tell you a true story about Stan. Stan went to seminary. Stan's heart was tender to the Lord. Stan committed to be a learner of Jesus and to impact others. People were impressed with him. People wanted to follow him. His heart grew cold. He turned. He followed certain distortions. He turned from following Jesus Christ. He got out of a community of faith. He would invariably deny his faith and became a skeptic. But years and years and years later, he's 80-something now. I know him. 80, at, uh, 79 years old, God got a hold of his life. He recommitted his life to Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, you know how many years passed between when he left the faith and when he came back to it? 50 years. 50 years. Trust God. Commit them to God. Is it easy? No. Is it worth it? Yes. And trust them to the goodness of God. Father, thanks for this word. May it take root in us. And I pray that you help us as we navigate the weeks ahead, as we talk about influencing others. I pray that you help us ward off these negative influences, that we would be a people who keep watch, who are on guard, who are alert, that we shepherd each other. And when it gets hard, as someone we love has departed the faith, that we would pray, that we would trust them to you. In Jesus we pray. If you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you need to talk to someone about what a relationship with God looks like, if you need someone to pray over a spiritual decision that you're facing, we are here for you. We will hang out after the service. We always do, but we're here now. Let's use these few minutes to honor God. You come uh, if if he's leading you.